Trigger warning, this podcast contains discussions about eating disorders, self-harm and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Behind the Mic, a vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists across different music scenes in the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their art history and most importantly, the person behind the mic. Before we get into today's guest, I put out a video message on Instagram about this earlier this weekend, but I'm recording this podcast this weekend, and as you can tell, I'm not hungover, so unfortunately, Just Checking In Live number four was cancelled, which had a bit of an impact on me. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who messaged me after I announced that news. Sadly, it was out of my hands. You can see more details about it on the video message I put out, but it doesn't make it any less devastating, obviously. I wanted to be as completely honest as I can, because that is obviously what this podcast and what Vent is all about, especially when it comes to my mental health. Just Checking In Live will return in 2023 and I'll be announcing details for that in January in the new year. Now, on to today's guest. My special guest for this episode of Behind The Mic is a singer-songwriter and artist who came very close to having their dreams of being a singer cut short before it even started. Greta Lovisa was born in Germany to Swedish-German parents and moved to London to study music for her degree and pursue her dreams of being an artist before COVID-19 hit and she took stock of her journey and dropped out of university. She'll be going back next year to finish her degree. I saw Greta live supporting my friend and Behind the Decks guest Pastel at Colours Hoxton and I know for a fact that Pastel has great taste in the artists he works with and produces for. Greta has lived with diagnosed depression since she was 13 years old and during her degree, because of her mental health difficulties at this time, Greta lost her voice and feared she would not be able to sing again. She had to undergo an operation on her vocal cords which was not guaranteed to work and she was also told it had a high chance of failure. She also had to train her voice once she began singing again after the operation was thankfully successful. In this episode, we chart her musical journey from Germany to the UK, transitioning from singing in German to English and her growth in confidence through that, the loneliness she's felt in moving to London as an artist and adjusting to all the cultural differences that the capital brings, how she's felt like an outsider at times and realised that a lot of relationships in the music industry outwardly can be very surface level whilst appearing hugely supportive. For Greta's mental health, we explore her depression diagnosis and the fact that she's been in therapy on and off since she was 12 years old. Greta has also in the last few years been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which then caused her to develop an eating disorder, specifically bulimia, and we unpack how the two interacted and the consequences of that for her mental health, which also included two suicide attempts. Thankfully, Greta is now in the most stable place she has ever been, and we talk about the positive impact medication has had on her. She takes two of those for her mental health, how her family and friends have become more understanding of her BPD, and her plans for music and life going forward. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the mic with Greta Lovisa. Greta, welcome to Behind the Mic. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. People who will have listened to this intro will know that this weekend's not been the easiest one for me with a lot of stress about just checking in. I've been cancelled, but we're powering through and I'm really excited to talk to you. And any fan of my good mate Pastel, who's been on the show before, is obviously a fan of mine. So how are you first? I'm great. Just got home from work. I mean, not home, here. <laughs> and feeling feeling excited. Yeah. Excellent. Your journey and I think life experience as an artist is something I've definitely not covered on the show before. So mm. I'm really excited to talk about absolutely everything and anything mm. that we're going to talk about today. So great. without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Yes, I am. Let's start behind the mic as we always do by talking about your music journey, Greta. Mm-hmm. So I ask all my special guests on this series this question first. Tell me how your love affair with music started, who were some of the artists you listened to growing up, and what age were you when you first started singing or playing instruments? Because I understand you come from a family of musicians. yeah. yeah. So it sounds very cliche when I talk about it, but I grew up around my dad 
constantly making music. And he sat me even as a baby on his lap and then played the piano. So he tried really to make me surrounded, feel surrounded by music. And then when I was four years old, I started playing the violin. It's very young. Yeah, yeah, I wanted so bad, I wanted so badly. And what was it about the violin that attracts you as a four-year-old? I actually don't really, I think I must have seen something, but I don't remember why. I just remember at the tiniest violin and I played it for like 12 to 13 years. I kept it with me for very long and then my dad played the guitar so I played the guitar wrote my first song when I was four the shittiest song I've ever written wow write a song when you're four that is mad (laughs) mad to me yeah I still have like videos from it and everything and then when I was eight I started playing the piano but always singing always been very loud Mm. and the youngest of my whole family so like a very loud younger sibling (laughs) always singing yeah you decided to make a very big step from Germany, where mm. you were born, to the UK when you were 19 years old, Greta. So given how now we're talking at this point, Berlin is full of artists. <laughs> I mean, I could name about 10 artists off the top of my head who seem to be living in Berlin right now. Why did you make the choice to come to London and not a short journey over to Berlin? So the thing is with London, I always loved London. Since the film Notting Hill... <laughs> I wanted to live there and I mostly listened to English music and I didn't like the way German sounds in music. It's quite harsh. Even when I try to sing German, it feels weird. It doesn't feel like I'm speaking. Does it it feel natural to you? No, it doesn't at all. And I am fluent in German. I'm way better than in English. But with singing, there's just a different language for me. And then my sister moved to London, moved to England when she was 16 and then to London when she was, I think, like 19 or something, or a little bit older. And I came to visit her and I was like, this is, this is the city for me. And it wasn't as expensive back then. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, gentrification's done, yeah. done a lot for but that. But my sister actually lives in Berlin, and which is crazy because I've only been to Berlin three times in my life. Wow. And those three times have been in this year because I just became an auntie. So I was obviously trying to be there. But the music scene in Germany was just something that really hadn't crossed my mind. At that point, yeah. Yeah. It's quite it's, good now. It's quite a few artists. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, but it was, it was, it's always a bit slower in, mm. in Germany with everything. <laughs> Listen to Paul. I mean, they're a German disco band. Oh, really? Like yeah. yeah, yeah really I mean, good. Sweden, definitely amazing, but Germany was always, hmm. But now I'm actually, I mean, I wouldn't say no, but mm. I'm just, I fell in love with London. Sure. Yeah. And then when you came to London, you were living on your sister's sofa, I think, at mm-hmm. that point. So did you feel any anxiety during this point or were you just yeah. kind of like headfirst into London living and you were just kind of making do as you went? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, when I decided to go to London, I knew I was going to do it. So um, my family actually, especially my parents, weren't happy with me doing it because I wasn't the most stable child so they were like you can't just go into this huge city on your own and then I packed my bags when I was 19 and just left Uh, my mom knew it my dad didn't and it was scary because I knew that my dad wasn't happy with that decision Mm. so we didn't speak for like a couple months oh wow and I completely understand, I have to be honest. I would have done the exact same as my dad. So they were worried for you. And yeah, anything, very worried. Yeah. And I understand, but I was stubborn. I needed to go here. And it was the best decision I could have made, to be fair. Yeah, I was scared. But I grew up in those six months of just having to do it on my own a lot. Mm. And it was it was good. Because now I get everything from my family, my dad, my mom. They're all very supportive. But mm. I needed that little push, mm. I think. Let's fast forward a little bit then to 2019. Mm. So you started a bachelor's degree in professional vocal performance at the Institute of Contemporary Music. So tell me what you learned during this period before the behemoth that was COVID-19 hit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Moved here, started at ICMP. I had to work full time during that as well. So it was the raining. And I also wanted to have some time to make friends, which I didn't have. So it was really draining and I didn't really get into the school side of things very much. I think I made myself feel like an outsider and then I was like, I don't fit in here. And then I, 
I chose the wrong course for that point of my life because I wanted to write songs and learn how to write songs, learn how to write songs in English. And I chose to do performance, which is more session singing. So I was just like, I don't fit in here. I am doing the wrong thing. And then COVID hit anyways. So yeah, mm. that was the first year. You then made the decision to drop out of university. Was that to do with the course itself? Was it to do with just the way that COVID had just affected everything? Like what was your thinking at that point? Oh God, yeah. I dropped out because firstly, yes, I didn't take the time to actually get into the course as everyone else did around me. So that also meant... I didn't really have a lot of groups there. I actually built a little group after I dropped out, which was funny. And then COVID hit, I was staying in Leicester with my ex and it was just, everything was different. And I was doing music with him and I was like, I would rather just do what I'm doing right now and just completely take the risk and work full time, do music um, next to it and not spend time on something that Right now doesn't feel correct. And I wasn't also very happy. I just want to talk about when you said there about learning to sing in English. So Mm -hmm. how did you go about that? Was it a case of immersing yourself in London and immersing yourself in, you know, listening to English songs and English artists? Was there a mechanical process to it? And when did you feel confident in writing and singing in English? Yeah, this is weird because every time I try to go back, I listen to... Two songs I wrote at the start of lockdown and I listened to them and I was like, oh my God, I talk about stuff that don't mean anything to me. I was just trying to copy anything that I had. What were you listening to at the time then? I listened to a lot of R&B, Beyonce. I mean, I grew up with Beyonce and Christina Aguilera and just the people I found very cool right now in London. And I tried to copy exactly what they did. And then my first time knowing... When I found like my voice was when I wrote Colorblind, which is a song I wrote about colors. And that's when it clicked. I found exactly the right words for myself. And I write better than I actually speak. I mean, it's very weird, but I think I have the time to actually think of what I'm saying. And now it feels so much easier to me. And it's a huge difference of what I'm writing. I actually don't know how it happened. I think there was just... There was the, no eureka moment. No, it wasn't. It was, I had film. no yeah. clue how this was just... It just, yeah, happened. You spoke there about your influences and, and R&B and the sound mm. that you've been creating. So tell me the listeners about you as an artist now. So how would you describe your sound? And I guess, you know, this is your time to plug yourself, I guess, to the people <laughs> who haven't heard you before. <laughs> okay. Well, I would say... I started off doing R&B, but let's forget about the last two years, please, when I started doing music. Now I found myself in soul. I listen to Edda James a lot. So the way I sing comes from R&B and soul, but I'm very much a storytelling person. So it's like singer-songwriter going into soul, but not like poppy. It's more, yeah, I want to I wanna tell a story. It's... Yeah, you're not putting yourself in a story. box. Story exactly. Yeah, 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 storytelling. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's soul pop storytelling. Mm. One question I always ask every guest on behind the mic, Greta, mm-hmm. is about the realities of doing music that perhaps your fans don't appreciate, or even maybe friends and family. Just tell me about some of the realities of your experience here when it comes to, I guess, balancing music alongside life. <laughs> well, balancing, yeah. I think right now we have the best opportunities because social media makes it so easy. But it also feels like whatever you do, if you I do most stuff on social media now. That's how I found myself to be able to balance everything. But yeah, it's just, we've just got more time. When I sit down and I record for a whole day, it just feels like I haven't seen anyone. I haven't made no actual connection, but that's not really true because now I found myself seeing a lot a lot of people through social media balancing like the personal side and music right now is pretty easy because I choose to do everything on social media I can go out in the evenings if I want to so it's not it's not a lot of gigging which um, yet yeah yet <laughs> yet I mean COVID was there it, it was weird I started off over social media everything started off over social media so yeah the balance is 
right now easy to find but we'll mm. see what's gonna happen let's talk about live performance then so take me back to your first ever gig that you did you know where was it how did it go what nerves or anxiety did you have before it and what was that feeling like afterwards I always say that my first gig was when I was 16 and I sang but I thought about this question and actually that's not true because I had a very big violin <laughs> gig when I was six and it was a lot of people and my mum told me that I wasn't nervous at all and then when I was maybe around 15 I was so nervous that I completely stopped gigging 16 then singing for the first time on a festival in Wells not Wales, Wales in Somerset because I went to school there for three months and I went on that stage thinking I'm going to do psychology because I want it to be safe and I went off of the stage and said I will never do psychology and not try to at least do this music thingy everybody's so scared of and yeah that was when I was like this is amazing I love this um, so yeah. you felt lost in that moment pretty much 100% yeah. I also if the guest feels comfortable talk about mistakes that artists make or bad sets or bad gigs and most importantly for my listeners so they can learn from it and, and what did you learn from it so is there a particular story or example that you feel comfortable sharing about a mistake that you made and what did you learn from it as well I think for me I haven't gigged for that long and the only thing I can say is right now in this stage of not being famous this is the best thing not knowing what you're doing and completely maybe I don't know if I can swear fucking yeah, everything yeah, yeah, you up swear. <laughs> you know <laughs> fucking everything up and singing out of key and forgetting or words or mic's not working exactly yeah. because this is the stage you can be happy about that no one gives a shit about you so yeah I'm glad that I can do all those mistakes yet mm. and I haven't not to, not to be like I'm perfect but actually I'm, I'm happy with most of my gigs but I'm aware that this can this can for sure happen and then conversely and what's the best show you've ever done for your mental health for my mental health oh the best show I've done was um I think my fourth show it was at the Camden Club which, by the way, is a new venue, is amazing. Another venue in Camden. But this sound is done by people that are so great and they just know their shit. So when I then just felt completely at home for the first time mm. at, on the stage, I thought I sounded great. <laughs> I, felt, I felt great on stage and sang my own songs and saw a couple people in the crowd, which were my friends and... It was just a feeling of, I can do this. Mm. This is fine, yeah. What outlet out of songwriting, singing, or even producing or playing other instruments, what one has the biggest impact on your mental health, would you say? Oh, um, singing. It was always my outlet. I sang when I was sad. I sang when I was happy. It was just the way I could actually put the feelings that I was trying to describe into, into sounds. Not even words, because, yeah couldn't speak English very well but yeah no singing for sure still is and will always be number one outlet for me you say there about it being the number one outlet and we're gonna get now to a period where mm. it wasn't your number one outlet <laughs> you didn't even have it so yeah. just tell the listeners about when you lost your voice mm. during a period of mental health difficulty so you were 17 years old mm. take me back to that period what do you think triggered it and then what actually caused you to lose it altogether so, yeah, oh, that was a terrible time, especially because it was my outlet. So what happened was that I didn't treat my body correctly. I went out a lot. I talked weirdly because I was tense and I was so unhappy that this can really affect, affect the way your muscles work mm. around, around your neck. Then I had a very bad eating disorder, which triggered it a lot. And then one month after another, I just sounded more like an old lady, which isn't very great. And I was thinking, God, this is just this is just a phase. Maybe this is how I will sound from now on. Maybe, yeah. But I woke up and I had the worst pain in my throat. And that went on for two years. And then when I started university, 
everyone could sing higher than I could. And I was like, who gives a shit if I can sing high? I can sing with feelings. But I was just I was just trying to hide that I actually was so insecure, didn't want to sing in front of anyone. I just was like, I actually can do this. I know what I could sound like and it just didn't come out. So yeah, I lost it completely then. Um, it was so scary. And then I found out that I had to have a, an operation and there was a high chance of actually never being able to sing again through the operation yeah yeah but there was also chance because i would be losing my voice anyways so i thought shit should have gotten better grades at school <laughs> and gotten a different future but i took the took the risk and wasn't able to talk for a month properly and then i made my first sound cried and got my voice back better than ever it was amazing before you made that recovery did mm. your mind go to places where you thought i'm never going to be able to sing again 100 percent. i i was i was i mean i still sang but i was just so unhappy with the way my voice I, people thought it was cool i was like raspy i was all of this but i had no range and i hated it because i knew that my whole life i felt like singing was something i was actually really proud of I was, when I'm older and super, I mean, ugly, I don't know, this is something I would have. And I was just so, I was so, so proud of it. And losing exactly something that was everything to me was the scariest thing. But it was also scary to just go on and destroy my voice the way I was. So yeah, it was, it was, it took me to very dark places. You spoke there about the eating disorder which we'll, we will get to mm. later in the pod Greta but I just want to move on to industry issues now because mm. the first one you wanted to talk about is the big move you made mm. to London which can be pretty scary for anyone I can only <laughs> imagine what it's like I'm, I was born and raised here so I have actually yeah. have no experience of, of, of the, what this is at all so how did you adjust to it because you mentioned earlier you found London quite a lonely place and you internalized feeling like an outsider so just take me back to that period well I have to say when I first moved here when I was 19 I completely fell in love with someone and I put all my energy on that one person because obviously if you don't have a family this is all you're gonna want that was a blessing and a curse because yes two years I was one and a half years I was I didn't feel like I had no friends but it also meant that afterwards I really had no one. So firstly with friends, I didn't really grow my own friendship group, which was scary. And I felt like as soon as I tried, I just, it's very clicky. It is a lot of- <laughs> London tends to be, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot like, I remember when I then started making my own friends, I thought, God, everybody loves me. Um, because everybody's so nice and in Germany we're quite blunt. Fake nice. Fake nice. It, yeah. Which, I mean, I love that. Don't be rude <laughs> to me on the train. If it's you, good, if, I'll get it for a while. Yeah, and then, yeah. But I was really like, oh shit, I am popular. And I wasn't because it was fake. Yeah, it was all fake. And I really had to learn the hard way. Same with the industry, very clicky. And you have to really go through all people. What do they actually want from you? Especially as a woman, to be fair. Mm. So like ulterior motives or like transactional yeah, relationships. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 100%. And I will say I am a very naive person and I don't want to lose this. But I did have to grow out of it a little bit. Because I just thought everybody, everything was going great for me. Which then every time I just, like it was a punch in the face. No, no, this is, you still are not inside this industry uh, this London industry, which... So every time you thought you were there... Oh, yeah. You 100%. had the kind of blocks put in. Yeah. I thought, like, oh, great, there's going to be a lot of people at the gig. And then I just grew into knowing these are actually the people that will stick. I was so jealous. And I still am with the people that grew up in England because they can have 20 people come to their gig because they grew up here, they know the people. And moving if here... If they're lucky, with, though. Yeah, if... <laughs> Oh, or like, the older you get, the less friends you oh. seem to have. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, just like, oh, I was just like, oh, how do people have all of this? Um, 
knowing I came here and my family would love to come to my gifts, but they can't. I just thought, God, I'm just, just an outsider. You were comparing yourself to other people then? I was comparing yeah. myself to people that obviously grew up here. Probably living fake lives a little <laughs> bit on social media as well. So what you thought was maybe... Yes, 100 What they were portraying... Perhaps they were only having 10 people and, come to their And gigs. the thing is, I'm shit at portraying something. <laughs> <laughs> so if I don't have a lot of people there, or if I am not doing well, you can tell. So I was like, okay, well, this is just shit. Do you think you were putting in too much effort with people that perhaps didn't give it back? 100%. This is something I would never regret. But I... It's how we learn. It's how we yeah. learn. And I still will do that. Because... Yeah, I mean, you get, you kind of get into the fake niceness as well. You learn how to talk to someone, how to say, "Oh my God, let's meet up," and never meet up. But <laughs> that's a you very know, thing to you do, know yeah. how many times I was like, "Okay, when? <laughs> what time?" There was a lot of that during COVID. It was let's meet up after COVID, and then uh, I'm never hearing from no, that person again. Yeah, no, exactly. So it's yeah, it's. It's okay now. I've got really good friends. You said there about now having that support group and you mentioned mm. to me off air you've got a couple of mentors now yes. that help you with your music. So yes. how have they helped your music and also how have they helped your mental health in sort of adjusting more to the industry, its nooks and crannies and mm. I guess how to navigate it properly? I've got really lucky. I have that it started off with meeting a guy called Matt and his wife, Bailey. And this has been like, I don't know, six, seven months. And they are two of the most incredible musicians I've ever met. They've been in the industry since way longer than I have been. I found myself not finding that in the people that are my age because, again, clicky and fake sometimes. And no, they're amazing. We write songs together. They, Matt produces for me and they have let, me to Tony which is the guy who does the Camden Club he has been in the industry for ages been in a been in a super cool band which a lot of people know but I forgot the name of when he was younger sorry Tony if you're listening no I'm sorry Tony (laughs) (laughs) and they just these three people they oh I am so thankful because they really believe in me. And without them, I wouldn't myself. So I could not be more thankful for them. Let's reflect then on your music journey before we move on, Greta. So mm. what has it taught you about yourself so far? <laughs> Again, that I'm naive. <laughs> <laughs> that I am happy to be open. That I can, I can do stuff on my own. When I first started, I was so... Not in a bad way. My ex played a big role in my how I write music. He's an amazing writer. And it made me think, oh, sh- I can never write like that. And I can't write like that, but I can write on my own, in my own way. This was a big thing that happened where I was like, actually, you know what? You can do this without letting everybody read over it and think, oh, God, do I sound like, if, do I sound very foreign right now? That was a big thing big thing for my self-confidence I can perform on my own give me the keyboard and I can do it which I never knew before I don't need anyone else on stage that's what Pascal does he's only got a drummer exactly plays about 50 different million 50 million (laughs) instruments exactly he's the best and yeah that's something that I loved and then that I am still a child I think we all are to some degree, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I get what you mean. <laughs> I was thinking now I will be famous and rich. Oh God, if my 16-year-old me would see me now, she would still be proud. You've got a long way to go, so don't yeah. discount Ex- that. Exa- yeah. Exactly, no, but like, <laughs> I'm happy I'm doing the right things now. Yeah, I get what you mean though. I mean, I've been doing event for five years now, mm. since September. So it was five years in September. And when I started out, I was like, oh, yeah, year in. It's going to be so big and like, it's, I'm going to do all this stuff. And then I was actually like, oh, wow, this is actually quite a slog. No, people exactly. don't even want to like my social media posts out of no, fear that someone else will I see them liking a social media posts. I slow the fuck down. Mm. <laughs> but I, I... You learn that. You, you learn I that. learn yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I hate it. Yeah, but... no, you, yeah, you do hate <laughs> it a little hate bit it, at times. Yeah. Let's finish off with a final question because you wanted to plug your latest single, which is coming mm. out soon, as it has a particular mental health significance to you so tell the listeners 
more about it and where they can listen. Actually, yeah, most songs I write right now is about that. My next single is called Can You Hear Me? I wrote it for my sister and it's about trying to let someone else know when they're not feeling well that you love them. It's um, as if you, let me paint a picture, as if you go through like a very dark forest and there's a lot of smoke around you and you're trying to find this person and just trying to get them out of there but you can't really find them so you're gonna scream I love you to make them hear you that is what the song is about and people could relate to it I posted it on my TikTok and I am currently just waiting on it to be completely done so everything's recorded and it's going to be out the next two months amazing if and I had I'm more money I'd put a soundscape as you were talking about <laughs> with like whooshing sounds I'm not, I haven't got enough time to do that <laughs> I can do it shh <laughs> but no, no. that'll do <laughs> I'm something I'm very proud of. And I wrote it with, again, Matt and Bailey. And they just helped me put that into perspective, I guess. We've talked all about your music journey, Greta. Let's go mm-hmm. behind the mic and talk about your mental health journey. So I ask mm-hmm. all my special guests this question first on this topic too. Tell me about your early life, childhood, teenage years, And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Greta we meet here? I can pinpoint a very specific one. When I was 12, I had my first burnout, which is crazy because a 12-year-old shouldn't have a burnout. Um, So I completely broke down and then had a, a shaking arm. I can still have it sometimes for like five, five years. It was very weird. Did you find out what that was caused by? I've just been like told it, it can or... be burnout. If you have a like huge mental breakdown, then it can be caused that like very. So it's unstable. like a tick. It's like yeah. yeah. It's like I can have it in the like when I'm super tired or sad, it can get back. So it's like your body's way of telling you now it's that like, you're okay, stressed. Yeah. Sit the sh- yeah. Fuck down. <laughs> the noise swearing, Greta. No, but um, you've done it three times yeah. now. I mean, it's fine. Literally, you can say what you want now. <laughs> yeah. Then I, I was with my first therapist after that. Was, For the listeners, when you say I was with my first, you've had quite a lot, haven't I, you? Yeah, I'm on a good, good, good streak. I, was I mean, I thought I had a lot, and I had four. You've had <laughs> double figures. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been there on that. Yeah, first therapist for twelve, and he was lovely. And I start self harming then, and I think it was because I wanted people to see that I am not feeling well. So it was a cry for help? Yeah, definitely. And then my mum sent me to hospital, which was a crazy experience. I lived there with a little family and got very close with one person who's sadly not alive anymore. How long did you stay here in the hospital? Three months. Wow, okay. So quite a long period. Yeah, I really built my little family there. And I loved it. I mean, we were all super sad, and but we kind of held each other up. And yeah, I got very close with everyone there. And I got out, had a little break of real world, and was happy to be one of them that survived all of that, you know? Like, depression. Did you do group therapy at all? Did you sit in a circle like that stereotypical um, hospital actually, setting where everyone goes, no, my name yeah. is, and I have... Yeah, no, God, no. It wasn't AA, it was... Okay, <laughs> right, it was a bit more, yeah, a bit more heavy than that. We painted sometimes. Oh, mm. now I've got the picture yeah. in my head. Right, okay, cool. <laughs> and I hated it. Group activities, right. <laughs> exactly. But it also ended up in us just trying to be teenagers, you know. Just going so you were all the same age, it wasn't... Okay. No, I was, I was 13, my closest friend was 17, and then everyone else was in between. Right, okay. Mm. So all in the same age bracket, basically. Yeah. Same sort of life but yeah, experiences. Exactly. No, God, no. I mean, when I say life experiences, I mean very different ones, but <laughs> like ones. in the same stage of life you it were. It puts you into yeah. perspective. Mm. Sure. But this made me very open about mental health. I've been an open book since then. And yeah, very well, I guess. When did you find the right therapist? There is no right one. Oh, okay. Wow, okay. So the 16 that you had... None worked for you? No, everyone worked. Oh, everyone worked? Yeah. Oh, so it's the opposite. Okay. I mean, in the hospital, you have a, quite a couple ones. 
Oh, right. So because you were in hospital, you had quite... You were yeah, going, I right, had, okay. Like, yeah, I had quite a, a lot in hospital. You speak to a lot of different ones. Sure. I had one that I didn't like afterwards. Right now, the one I have right now, is actually over FaceTime. Like, fiber. It's like yep. FaceTime. She's amazing. Had her since I moved here. My first one, he was amazing too. And that's all CBT. What does that mean? Cognitive behavior. Oh, yeah. Therapy, yeah. <laughs> When they, give you homework, when they give CBT? you homework, no, that's CBA. <laughs> oh, I know, yeah, cognitive behavior. they give behavior. you, like, homework no, to yeah. do at the end. Oh, no, no. They say, go away and come back and re- come back for this <laughs> next session. I had those as well. Okay. Yeah. It was, oh, I actually don't know. I think it was. A couple months were for sure. I had a little homework. I hate homework, so I never did it. But I was easy to work with as I was so happy to speak about myself. <laughs> so, Yeah. I liked mostly all of like most of them. I liked a lot. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. Let's talk about a recent-ish diagnosis that you got, but a quite serious one. And actually, I've only spoken to men who have had this mental oh, health condition mm-hmm. before on the podcast. I've actually never spoken to a female. So mm-hmm. I'm really interested to hear your take and your experience of this. It's called borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And you started having manic episodes during the COVID-19 lockdowns. And... The guest that I spoke to who talks about the difference between BPD and bipolar is that bipolar, you can have manic episodes over maybe a longer distance, Mm. whereas borderline, you can have a manic episode and depressive episode in like the same day. day, Yeah. Yeah, So just tell the listeners when you started to have these experiences, maybe when you thought something was more than wrong and Mm. when you finally got diagnosed. Okay. So I... Actually, let's say the first lockdown was perfect. I had a great time. I mean, that's quite a statement for the first lockdown. I, my mental health I was not good. I <laughs> loved my first lockdown. I was having the best time, but I had to control myself in a lot of ways, like eating and everything. So it was like, yeah. The first lockdown, I think it was great. Second lockdown and everything, then afterwards, when I then... Uh, when I... Yeah, I could have... St- like sat on my own and start laughing out loud which was a little bit creepy but um i mean i do that when i, I live on my own so i probably <laughs> do that all the time to be honest i mean i do that too but like <laughs> i had butterflies in my whole body i was just thinking this is amazing i will never be depressed anymore and thinking that and it held on for a little bit longer so this is the manic phase yeah and then i got it back depressed but worse than ever and thought i yeah, I went out loads. I was rude to to a lot of people. I didn't really know what I was doing, who I was. You didn't feel in control? Oh, God, no, I didn't at all. And I, yeah, everyone around me that I loved very dearly, I pushed away. And my family was so worried. Then I was happy again. Oh, great, everything's fine. I go spend all my money. I go meet 15 new people which are all my best friends and then I am on my own again. How long was this period where you were switching between these two phases? Oh, it could be super different. Could literally be in one day. But then I really tried to keep it up. I journaled. I I wanted to keep this feeling but there was a specific point in those episodes where I thought, this is not normal. It can't be this perfect. You wanted to keep the high constantly. Yeah, but then yeah. I was also afraid of the high because mm. I knew that the low was coming. And I I was like, I don't know. It could have, it, it was something that's not that extreme, but sometimes it was. And I was a very loud, I'm still actually, very loud person. And I put myself into very dangerous situations because of that. I needed to go out. I needed to meet thousand people. I needed to get rid of these butterflies inside of me. It's weird. You don't normally want to get rid of them, but I could not sit still. I was like, I need to go have a two-night bender because otherwise I won't ever feel tired again. So it was a feeling of I didn't like either. And there could be weeks or days. So you needed something to channel it, but it wasn't the positive outlets you were going to first right 100 percent, and i was also like everyone around me i found boring i was not on a route i mean it sounds fucking rude but i was like why is no one going out with me why is no one doing this you were you were annoyed that no one was at your level exactly people were like i can't be at that level all the time (laughs) exactly Yeah. yeah and then 
I, I broke my whole relationship because of that and I needed to be on my own and I needed to be at my lowest and I tried to end my life twice which was more a cry of help for help I think but I didn't want to tell anyone because it was so embarrassing because obviously the high came back and I was like why I'm, I'm okay and my family was like you need to come home and so did they like, know now at this point yeah, yeah yeah they did and then I went home for a diagnosis and they were like yeah Borderline. How did you feel when they told you that? Did oh, right. Were you shocked or were you like, oh, this actually makes sense? Oh, I was so happy. Right, okay. So well, you felt validated. She, she, she was, yeah, she was great because she said, I'm not going to put you into a box because everything is different and what it sounds like is borderline personality disorder. But there could be a mixture of something else. We don't know. But I think people like, labels are comforting. Mm. And I just... It was almost as a a feeling of, so I'm not crazy, so I won't forever be alone, so I will be able to keep relationships. And I got medication, and it was like, oh, it was a relief. I Mm. can't explain. I was like, so I will be ending this feeling. Just tell the listeners a little bit about the specific symptoms of how your BPD affects you, because I've read an entire book on BPD, and I still don't really understand it that much. I do know it's... Sometimes, well, classically, it can be a stable identity. It can be reckless behavior. There's a few other ones that I can't remember off the top of my head. But just tell me your experience. Because I know I mean, it differs to people who've got BPD as well. Reckless behavior is something... You tick that one off. I mean, yeah. that's... <laughs> 100%. I didn't know who I was, for sure. I was... I think the main thing where I can now pin it back is how I treated other people. I hated people being worried about me because it didn't help. For sure, it did not help people being worried. Did you feel like they were taking away your independence? Yes, firstly that. And also, I knew that if they're being worried, it just makes me more sad. So I couldn't control what I was doing, but the only person actually getting me out of this was me. So I pushed everyone away because I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed about how I, how I was behaving. Um, but I also knew that I will hurt everyone around me if I keep everyone in this. So it was self-destructive at this point. Very self-destructive. Then I obviously, not obviously, but self-harming behaviour in terms of purging, which... um, Mass eating disorder you mentioned earlier in the pod. That was a very big outlet for me. And then, yeah, again, very reckless behaviour and I didn't know how to love myself and be loved by everyone else. I hated myself really much. And I didn't even... Nobody really understood that I did. I think it's the first time I really say that out loud. How much I really, really disliked myself. And really thought, I have to break everything that will tie someone to me. And I see that now. But that was a big thing I think I did to myself. Yeah. How did you go about finding out who you were? (laughs) Well, to be fair... Medication helped loads. So what medication do you take then? <laughs> I take antipsychotics and antidepressants. My listeners will probably know what the second one does because it's, well, the, they're both self-explanatory in a way. <laughs> but what does the former do? I don't know much about how, what antipsychotics do. So what they do, if you take a lot of them, if you're basically just in a state of bleh. Right. But I don't take too much. So it makes you calm down and stabilises you in a way that you don't get as manic or depressed. So firstly, it makes it calm down. It makes, for people that have bulimia, makes them not have the feeling of, I need to get something outside. I need to get this feeling of, you know how I said butterflies? Mm -hmm. You don't have that as much. You can sleep like a baby as well, which is great. So the feeling of, I'm in love with everyone, and I'm in love with life, but also I hate everything. It's a very weird feeling. You, you can still have... love life, but I mean, but... maybe not to the nth degree. Perhaps. No, yeah, yeah, no, but like the feeling of, I feel like I love life, but I don't know what is going on inside of me, goes away with it. Because mm. you get a feeling of calmness, which is very good. So mm. that helped. I'm someone who's starting to like themselves. And I am starting to... <sighs> I definitely have grown up. I'm nicer. I'm nicer to my mum. I'm nicer to everyone around me. 
which is a big thing for me. I want to be nice. Do they understand you more now? Yeah, yeah. I would say I fell into a little more of a child again, in a weird way. In a way that, you know, with 19, I thought I knew everything. And I am a bad bitch. And now I'm just like, I'm so not a bad bitch. Mm. And I don't know anything. And yeah, I life comes at you fast when you feel to yeah. be with my mum and in my mum's arm. And, you know, like, I appreciate family way more. And I believe in myself more. Have you forgiven yourself? Not yet. But I'm on my way there. Because that's the most important thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's hard to forgive yourself if you can't really talk to the people you've hurt. I am on my way to forgive myself and because I hurt myself the most. I did. And I I am still learning how to, to like my body in the way. Have you tried writing a message to them and then burning it? I've actually done that to one person. Okay, you've done it already. I, I've done it. I've done it to one person, and it helped me loads. And I know they will never read that, but it helped me. A lot. Well, you can't really because you burnt it, but I, mean... I didn't burn it. I just <laughs> oh threw right, it away. okay, just threw it away. Cool. <laughs> but relationship to my family have been amazing. Excellent. Yeah. Let's talk about the ED a bit more, if we can, because you said it was a symptom of the BPD, perhaps, or, or the way that it engaged with it. So just tell the listeners what your ED was because there's a few, mm. I've interviewed quite a few guests with different ones mm. and then how it began to sort of take hold of your mental health and obviously physical health. So I remember that when I, I started colouring counting when I was like 16, 15 and that went into like me losing lots of weight but when I then moved to... London, I didn't want that. I didn't want to control myself that much. And which is a crazy thing. I mean, I was lucky that I could get out of that feeling of I don't want that much control. Because that's the key element here, control. Exactly. Which was, yeah, that's the key thing. But I then think, it yeah. turned into actually not being control. So... What was it I, It was an outlet. It was self-harming. It was, it was the feeling afterwards, which is a high that you get. The feeling afterwards. That is true, yeah. Purging. Speaking from experience. Yeah. yeah, purging and then, yeah. It's a feeling of... Did you feel I zen get... when you were doing it? Zen? I get in, I, we're not, so I yeah. used, for the listeners, I used to bite my nails quite horrifically yeah. as a self-harm method and uh, it took me quite intense therapy to mm. uh, heal it. But when I was doing it, it's like you're in a trance-like state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The feeling afterwards. I was once not seeing when I, I ate and I... I needed to sit down in for 30 minutes to not run to the toilet. And I I couldn't see. I didn't have any clear vision. So Because you were that underweight or that feel? No, no, no. I, no, I couldn't see because I was so anxious. This was like literally someone putting, I'm putting two hands on my head right now. Two hands and making my vision just dark. So I ran to the toilet, I purged, and then like I see colours again. It was a weird feeling of being so relieved of everything I just put my body into, like food, which is mm. normal. But it was a feeling of, I'm disgusting. That was but the I pain. Think, that was what lay behind yeah, it. Yeah, it was like, yeah. I've, I'm a pig that eats. That's the feeling. And I think that is just from a lot of how much I dislike me, actually. So I got rid of... I am doing a lot better, a lot better, which is insane that I'm even here feeling a lot better. Mm. But yeah, that feeling was was as zen as if you just smoked a joint. You spoke to me off air about the feeling of wanting to be numb when you Mm -hmm. did it or after you did it. Did you want to escape the emotions that you were feeling, the anxiety like you said you were feeling Mm. in, in this, I guess, constant state of emotional instability was it better in your head to feel nothing than feel everything at once a hundred percent i think before then purging there was just this voice of saying you're the worst person on this planet and it was so loud and i didn't make it better with having obviously being manic and depressed and manic and depressed and hurting everyone and so the only outlet of this was 
feeling numb and tired and I could sleep better. But it also ended up in me literally doing it seven times until I bled and just laying on the floor. It was a weird feeling of, I don't want to feel anything, so I'm literally going to make my feel like in so much pain that I'm just drained. That was a lot. When did you start to feel better? When did you feel like you could manage it? When I started, funny enough, when I started the medication, I wasn't able to purge, like throw it up because otherwise it doesn't work. So my mum was a huge help. I took the medication, had food, and then I had to sit with her and breathe through me getting so very anxious. And after that, it kind of helped. Whenever something really bad happens, it could still come to, like come back. But right now, um, nothing bad really happens. And it was a feeling of, I had to firstly come out of that extreme. And that my mum needed to help me with. And then I knew what is triggering it when I don't treat my body right, when I go out and do a lot of stuff I would regret the next morning. I had to be restrictive with myself because I wanted my voice to stay and I wanted to, my medications to stay. So first I didn't eat stuff that made me scared. That reminded me of purging. So the stuff that I ate every night when I was very extreme, I didn't eat. Otherwise, the taste of it remembered me of, oh, now you so should go. So it triggered go. you then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So all of that I didn't do. And then, yeah, my mum is huge help in all of this. And then my friends as well. I live with two people now. And less privacy means <laughs> less... Like, yeah, they can keep an eye on you ability. more. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Your mum's obviously going to listen to this podcast, mm. I would imagine. So you said she's obviously been a big help to you. What would, What would you say to her? My mum saved my life a thousand times over. I mean, the um, amount of pain I put my mum through, I don't know if I can ever make that up to her, but she's still here. She loves me so much, and I'm so thankful for that. But I think sometimes my mum thought she was a cause, but all I can say is that is the opposite of it. My mum was the person that literally saved me every single time. What's your relationship with food like now? Better. Still working on it. Depends on if I feel... Can go hand in hand with me thinking I'm not good enough for this industry. Not skinny or pretty enough. That sometimes still is hard, but... The comparison comes in there then again. Yeah, exactly, but... I am surrounded by the most loveliest people. And I built that through pain. I mean, I really had to sort everyone out. Loveliest people that know everything about me because I am a very open book. So that really helps. And I have to... (laughs) I've got this very weird coping mechanism that I lotion my body when I feel that way. Because that... In that way, you have to stroke yourself. So it's a soothing technique. Exactly. And also it's like being kind to yourself. Mm. And that I do a lot. And that really helps. It's weird, but it it works. Yeah. Before we reflect on your mental health journey, Greta, I just want to ask you one question about the things that you've done to help yourself, which have really improved your mental health massively in the bulimia and in the BPD. So for anyone, male or female, who is listening to this and has either of those conditions, what message or advice would you give them based on your experience? Based on my experience, I would say it's hard to be friends with someone or be in a relationship with someone who is ill in that way and let them go, let people come and go because the people that stay are the ones you actually need. That's one thing. And then the second thing is... And it sounds stupid, but it's really true. And I say that to myself all the time because I still need to hear it. It's just temporary. Um, It's not forever. And there's people nowadays, we're all so aware. And there's so many people you can talk to. And there's medication that helps you. And there's there's simple things as going on a fucking walk. It helps, really. (laughs) 
what I do is sometimes sit and listen to podcasts. <laughs> a lot, a, a lot of podcasts. And go for a walk. I mean, put lotion on. Right, okay. <laughs> so for the people who've got, yeah, people who actually need to, let, 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 we'll if you're depressed, that. just put lotion yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's reflect then on yes. your mental health journey, Greta. So, first of all, like I asked in the first topic, what has it taught you about yourself? That I'm stronger than I think. That I have nothing to be ashamed of. And that I am still learning a lot. Are you proud of yourself now? Yes, very much so. Good. Yeah. And as a final question before we move on, Mm -hmm. if you could go back and talk to perhaps the 13-year-old Greta, who Mm. was diagnosed with depression, going into therapy, perhaps the 18-year-old Greta who had just lost her voice and was wondering if she'd ever be able to sing again, or the Greta who was in the grips of the BPD and the bulimia, what would you say to her, knowing what you do now? Actually, little plug, I've written a song that is also coming out, and it's called Hey Pretty Baby, and it's exactly that. Um, It says, I wish I knew back then that all my tears will dry again. Everything, like it doesn't, it it won't last, Greta. (laughs) That's what I would say. And then um, I would say, please, please see yourself a little bit with more respect, because you deserve it. And never stop being fun at parties, because that I will never change. I, look, like, that is something that I don't want to lose ever. Still being naive and have a lot of fun. But maybe not yeah. too manic, Be okay? m- more stable, but still fun. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Stable, but fun. <laughs> Our final topic of conversation, Greta, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and a chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's... I'm this is the part of the podcast. Sometimes it's an awkward <laughs> question. Way better. Way, way, way better. I'm so much more aware of what I'm feeling. And I can only say thank you to everything I've been through before that I know how to cope with myself. So I'm on a great way to... I don't think I will ever be like the perfect stable who is. Who is. Exactly. Yeah, who is. But as far as perfection goes, I think I might be on the good, like on the right track. Getting there. Exactly. Yeah, we're all getting there. Exactly. Yeah. It's boring to be perfect anyway. Yeah, exactly. I've never found that. <laughs> yeah. I've never found that a good thing anyway. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? 12. So it was when you had the breakdown? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 100%. So I've had several breakdowns, a lot of breakdowns, (laughs) during teenage years, but I still wasn't aware of my own mental health. So what was it that made you click and go, actually, this is is actually mental health now? Well, the thing is, I mean, I talk about this one big one because it was the start of everyone once a day. And I was aware of it because I didn't want to live. And I knew a lot of it because... In my family, it's a common thing. Depression, everything around it, eating disorder, suicide as well. It's common in my family. So I was never unaware of it. And I always, always found it interesting, to be fair. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be, for example, things people say to you. It could be a sound, being in a particular social environment, sensations. Or have you not figured all of them out yet? Um... (laughs) I was about to say dating. <laughs> That's a big trigger for everyone, to be honest. <laughs> what is a trigger? Alcohol. Mm-hmm. Definitely is. I can... I have a very hard time when... Like, hearing-wise, I'm very sensitive. Not in a party, but when I'm on my own, I hear everything, and that can trigger me into think, literally going crazy. So in the kitchen, for example. Very so when loud. things are quiet, you hear everything little things more loudly. Yeah, right. Exactly. And then... I read the rest, there's so many, but I can't really pinpoint them, to be fair. Okay, that's fine. Conversely then, what tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health? Lotion. Lotion. Lotion, yeah, (laughs) apart from lotion, yeah. Have any that you've tried but not worked? Yeah, I mean, okay, nothing against my friends, I love my friends. But for me, it doesn't help to meet up with friends and talk about it. I am way better on my own in that case. So you don't like swimming in it? No, I mean, 
I can talk about it, but it won't help me. Sure. I can only help myself, and I'm very aware of that. But going for walks, as simple as it is, really, really helped. Always did. I need to get fresh air every day, otherwise I really go crazy. That triggers it, for sure. And then getting enough sleep. That's something okay. also. The basics. The basics, yeah. exactly. But keeping them up when you are manic and depressed sometimes. <laughs> no, I imagine that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The basics, but... Spending time with myself. I love spending time with myself. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? Like, did it feel like a big burden or weight even lifted off your shoulders on one hand? Or on the other, did it feel like something very insignificant, easy and normal to do? I mean, it was with my first therapist properly. I mean, no, I had a conversation with my mum, but I think she was getting used to it as well. It came out of nowhere. And I was just this fragile little girl and nobody knew what was going on in my head. And so the first conversation where I felt like I can really say what I'm thinking without hurting anyone else. Because obviously, if you want to hurt yourself, you're hurting your family actually more. I was my therapist and I enjoyed it. I really, I mean, I was so depressed, but I really, really liked being able to be honest about how much I hated everything. And that's what I remember for the first time. Was that easy to get out for the first time? I'm incredibly easy with right. saying exactly what's on my mind. <laughs> so so I, was lu- like I was lucky up. that. Yeah. No, I was lucky that. Because I knew exactly what I was feeling and I I have trouble not to say what I am feeling. So Okay. So you're so the opposite. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm exactly the opposite. I'm a little bit too honest sometimes. <laughs> so That's pros and cons to be fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I was uh, it was easy for me. Okay. What has been the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. The Secret. <laughs> no, wait, wait, wait. Not The Secret. What does That's it about Cosmic Order, isn't I know. It? <laughs> uh... Wait, wait, wait. The book where it gives you a structure of things you have to do. That sounds like The Secret. Is it? Why did that help you? I mean, do you know what? I shouldn't judge. Because it, it has help, helped a lot of people. So it helped how's me it helped not you? in the way that I think I'm going to be famous in, through it, but it gave me structure. And that's all I needed. It gave me 10 minutes to clear my mind in the morning, say 10 things I'm grateful for, and I'd still do that. So, so a gratitude list. It gave you a gratitude gra- list. It gave you a gratitude yeah. list. And it gave me literally five minutes in the morning where I had to read. It's not about the book itself. It gave me a little feeling of, huh, in the morning and a little structure mm-hmm. that I had to do, obviously, <laughs> had to do. So that was helpful, just in a way, I think it's a little bit bullshit, but I mean, the book, but it was great for me. It was amazing. I knew I can fly afterwards, but I knew that I had, <laughs> I was very, I wrote the, the letter to the person that helped me the most. I wrote them and they helped loads. Amazing. Okay, I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be as judgmental about. It's the, actually the really good for head. mental health. I mean, <laughs> if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Well, you, you have no fucking clue what you're doing. I guess. It's not That's a bad it. one. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's it. And as a final question, mm-hmm. what more do we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable? and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it. Don't try to judge right away. Listen, that's what I would say. If someone doesn't want to talk about it, don't make them. And I think we're doing everything we can for it because we're talking about it finally. On social media, everything. We're so much more aware than our parents ever were. So, yeah, I think we're really doing pretty good and on that note Greta Lavissa mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming on behind the mic and talking to me thank you so much for having me well that's all we've got time for on this episode of behind the mic I want to say a big thank you to Greta for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with her I'm also very grateful to her for being the first female guest to talk about borderline personality disorder and also her experience of bulimia 
I'll sign us off by saying thank you to everyone who's listened to this episode. You can support us by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. You can also make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. You can buy a Vent t-shirt, which is on our link tree, and that's across all of our channels. Please, guys, go share the podcast with everyone you know, your friends, your family. Spread the good word about Vent and the podcast. One of Greta's songs, Colorblind, will play us out, and I'll put all of Greta's social media and streaming links in the show notes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. For the blue coming through Grey skies when I first met you Can I call it change your future? Past all dreams to us together Chose gold for our ceilings White walls held the screens in Painted a picture with different mistakes In different shades Painted it with your dark and bright Shadows and lights So sweet and so bitter Should've done better Silver lining was holding on to.